Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. I'm George Bradley, architect and director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. And in this podcast, I talk to architects from around the world about inspiring houses that they have designed. In this episode, I talk to Aaron Peters, one half of the Australian architect duo Vokes and Peters. As a company, they have designed numerous award-winning houses in and around Brisbane. We talk about their recently completed project, Tenerife House, one which Aaron described to me as like a greatest hits version of a Vokes and Peters project, as it embodies so many of their design principles. It is a renovation and extension of an old colonial home in Brisbane, split over three levels with the main living spaces in the undercroft of the original house, opening onto landscaped spaces on all sides and shielded from the strong Queensland sun by a concrete arcade that supports the old property above. The living spaces are connected to the upper floors by a new angular shingle-clad extension that houses a new stair that winds its way up a triple-height space. The bedrooms are in the more traditional parts of the house and open onto wide verandas that circle the perimeter. There is so much going on in this project. Journeying through the house is like exploring a well-designed art gallery, with contrasts in materials, in natural light, and in spaces of both prospect and refuge. I love this project, and I think it's a great vehicle for exploring Vokes and Peter's work in general and their approach to designing homes. So before or even whilst listening to the episode, I recommend looking at some pictures and plans of the property on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Hello, Aaron. Thank you very much for joining um, another Architecture Podcast today. Good to be here. Um, So we're going to be talking about um, your Tenerife house uh, projects. And I mean, what I love about doing this podcast is basically getting to travel around the world and uh, talk to various different people about incredible and inspiring houses and things that surprise me as well. And I think a Tenerife house completely fits the bill. Um, And it's quite a tough one, I think, to describe to people um, on audio, but I'm going to set you that kind of task just to sort of give us a bit of sense of geography of, you know, what's going on with this project? There's so much happening. Um, can you kind of summarise it in a few lines, what's happening? Sure. So it's, it's an alteration and addition project. Uh, it's in the inner city of Brisbane, which is a city on the eastern seaboard of Australia. It's um, about a thousand clicks i think north of sydney so we're we're in a subtropical climate uh here and uh the the city is uh it was established um well it became a free settlement in about uh 1838 and um it's originally a penal settlement it kind of grew around you know a lot of natural resources that were were there to be exploited and um it's sort of slowly has grown into a subtropical metropolis Uh, and one of the most defining characteristics of Brisbane as a city is that it's largely historically timber built which is quite different from Sydney and Melbourne which are predominantly uh, brick cities and the that's sort of a it's a result of a number of different things but you know one of which was um, there was uh, a, a quite extensive uh, forestry industry here originally. So t- timber was uh, accessible. There were some early sawmills that were set up and I think one thing led to another and as a result we ended up with lots of these timbery sort of houses. And they're, they're referred to as Queenslanders um, after the, the state of Queensland. And th- this project, um, the Tenerife House, is one of those Queenslanders. Um, it originally was. So when you, when you think of a, t- a Queenslander, um, you think of a, a pitched roof uh, clad in tin. The really early ones were sometimes slate roofs, but there's pretty much none of those in existence anymore. Uh, they're, they're typically wrapped in verandas. Uh, they're sitting on stumps um, or stilts above the ground. So um, Brisbane has quite a sort of undulating terrain form. And it's, it's supposed, it's not really known why the Timber Queenslanders were raised on stumps, but there's a number of different theories. And one is that it's about managing this undulating terrain. Um, another is that in Brisbane, there are um, termites that eat timber buildings. 
um, and that they don't they don't like sunlight, so they tend to want to kind of hide under the ground and build little mud bridges. And as a result, the the, the stump um, is quite a good insulating barrier between the ground and the and the timber, because if any of the timber directly touches the ground, it, you know it'll get eaten within ten or fifteen years. So. They're, they're kind of the principal characteristics of a, of a Queenslander and this, this house, the original house that we're working with had all of those hallmarks, the pitched roof, the, um, the, the timber walls and linings of verandas that wrap around the outside and um, the stilts underneath the, the stumps that it was sitting on. And it's, as I understand it, it was a well-known, the, the house before you worked on it, it was designed by a well-known local architect and had its own kind of standing in the in the local surroundings. Is that right? To, to a degree. I mean, the A.B. Wilson uh, was the, the original architecture, architect um, of the house. He was a, um, a Scottish emigre, uh, came out in 1864 and established a practice in it, and it was one of the most prominent um, practices in, in that period. Uh, and, and in fact, is still uh, the, the family. It's a fourth generation architectural practice today. It's been going for 130 years. Um, so, so in, in that sense, the, the practice has been very significant. The house itself, I wouldn't say, was particularly well known. Um, you know, we, we weren't aware of it prior to embarking on the project, and I don't think many people would have known that it was either architecturally designed or um, uh, the work of a significant um, colonial architect but the perhaps one of the main reasons for that was that the the house although it was originally built um, for a ship's captain and and his family um, on a sort of on a, on a high point and a bend in a river where he could sort of watch the the commerce coming and going up and down the Brisbane River it it had subsequently fallen into uh, disrepair and largely because it had been converted into a into a hospital, um, a, me- a mental health hostel, and pretty heavily bastardised in the process. So one of the things that happens a lot to these timber Queenslanders is Queenslanders is that people um, they're, they're really easy to modify. You can take a, a saw and kind of hack a wall out in about 10 minutes. And there are a number of different ways in which they get modified and just about all of them had happened to this house. So walls had been blown out, the verandas had been enclosed to make additional rooms and it had also been built in underneath. So in that undercroft space between the floor and the ground where the, the sort of array of stumps would once have been, that had been turned into a number of different um, rooms as well. and. Uh, yeah, it, it was a pretty. It was in a pretty sorry condition when we started um, work on the project. They were sort of, uh, I think it had caught on fire at one point, and there was sort of um, scorch marks all over the ceilings and up the walls, and um, you know, lots of broken windows and little critters living in cavities and all of that sort of thing. So, so it, it's 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 prominence um, wasn't particularly particularly high, but. You could also tell that this was a special building. You know, there was, there was something going on. It was on this quite expansive block um, with wonderful views, and you know, so there, there was a gravitas to the building. But yeah, it was definitely a, a bit shabby. And if we look at what you've done to the house, um, so it's a transformation, a renovation, but it's an extension um, as well, and it's for a family, so it's a, it's a family home. Um, but if I kind of summarised in terms of what what you've done to the house, it's almost like three main elements. You've got the what I could sort of maybe describe as the 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 base, the sort of pediment. You've inserted this new concrete veranda or gridded um, structure at, at the bottom of the house. Mm-hmm. The kind of midriff of the house, or the kind of main sort of body of the house, is the existing colonial style. Um, house that you've just been describing but then there's this kind of twisted contorted modern shape um, element that you've kind of attached to the side of the house two stories um, which when it's broken down sounds quite sort of simple these three elements but actually the, the the whole thing kind of melds into one it's almost very it's very difficult to distinguish the work you've done in the existing building um, do you want to talk a little bit about sort of summarizing the actual sort of overall design of of 
of the project and where where this kind of started where this idea came from I like that description. I think it, it is quite a complex project and it, it's by far the biggest house that we've ever done. So uh, des- describing the, the layout of, of the house is is quite a bit of a challenge because there are a lot of different component parts to the building. But but I, I think that's a really good summation. Um, the, the, the way that we approached this building was, was really to draw upon a succession of projects that we'd undertaken over a long period of time. So Stu and I have been collaborating since um, 2003 um, and most of our work has been in this space of alterations and additions and, and working in the Brisbane suburbs, working with Timber Queenslanders and, and other kinds of buildings. But it, it had led us to a point where we had developed um, a, a kind of architectural language, a sensibility for working with these type of buildings. And in many ways, what the um, Tenerife House represents for us is a, a kind of culmination of a whole bunch of different ideas that had been tested and developed on other projects. And all of a sudden, we were given the broadest canvas that we'd ever been given on a project. Um, you know, it's it's the largest budget that we've worked with on a house, um, one of the biggest sites, um, and a kind of you know a historically significant house to boot. So it it was it was both different in the sense that you know the, the kind of breadth of the canvas was a challenge that we hadn't taken on before, but it was also a problem, or rather a series of problems that we had known, and we felt um, quite conversant in the language of these buildings and that gave us a confidence to be able to start to solve the problem. So um, if I sort of come back to the elements that you described, the, one, of the, one of the first things that... Um, so it, we developed a number of different schemes for this, for this project and it sort of had moments where it would go quiet and we weren't quite sure if it was going to to go ahead and then you know the client would go away for a little while and come back and then so that so it's it, there were a number of different iterations before we arrived at this one and really the defining starting point of this particular iteration the one that ended up being built was that the house was lifted and also turned 90 degrees um, so this is turning into a bit of a shaggy dog story, but it, it's kind of a shaggy dog story of a, of a process, I'm afraid. So hopefully your listeners will bear with me. Um, so we, w- one of the things you can do with these timber Queenslanders is, is you can pick them up and move them and people put them on the back of a truck and they drive them up the highway, um, to, you know, a couple of hundred kilometres away and then drop them on another, another site. So they're, they're incredibly kind of flexible in that way, in a, in a way that you can't really do with a, a stone house. Um, so, so we picked up the building and moved it, and that meant in, in doing that we we disrupted its relationship with its site that had existed for you know, hundred, hundred or more years, um, and we needed to start to stitch the building back into its condition. So, um, we had to make a suture to allow us to you know, place the house and allow it to have a relationship with the ground plan again. And we also knew that we needed to extend the building. So the solution that we found was to use the idea of this um, concrete colonnade, um, which you described that sits underneath the house, as a way of giving both the building a base to sit on, um, to to replicate um, the depth and the shadow that you might have found in the original composition of the building. So, you know, the underneath of the house would have been dark and shadowy and recessed. So it allowed us to sort of evoke that original condition, but it also allowed us to tie together both the new and the old parts of the building. So, as you described, we made um, a more contemporary addition at the rear of the building, which is clad in um, timber, white-painted timber shingles. Um, but this concrete element that sat underneath the building extends from uh, under the existing house all the way through underneath the new part of the building and beyond to capture a swimming pool and a new courtyard garden that sits to the rear of the building. So it was also compositionally a unifying element um, that allowed us to, to try and make a cohesive whole to this um, quite complex and um, building with a number of dif- disparate parts. 
Um, hopefully it does that. Um, but one of the things that that kind of, the, the, the unifying um, effect that this, this colonnade element had on the composition of the building was that we felt that we had the ability to do something quite lyrical with the new timber part that we made at the rear. So uh, that in, in its form is quite distinctly contemporary or, or modern, um, but it I would like to think still has some kind of relationship with the original architecture of the building um, in so much as it uses timber cladding, albeit not weatherboard or um, the VJ panel cladding um, as the original house did, um, but it still works in this lightweight architectural tectonic language. Um, and it also takes the original roof of the building and contorts those roof planes to make the new roof of this, this um, addition. So, so in, in doing those things, what we're trying to do is straddle this line between honouring and respecting the original building uh, and allowing it to continue to have uh, its, its own relationship with the street and for its original form to still be legible in the composition, but to not be constrained by that um, in terms of what we might be able to do with the building. Um, and I think that's really important because while we work a lot with the timber heritage of our city and we value it and we want to preserve it, we don't want to fall into the trap of just being subservient to that that, that, those narratives that existed, you know, 100, 150 years ago. We're living in a, you know, in um, the 21st century, we have very different lives and ideas and um, social dynamics. And we also want to be able to make an architecture that reflects those conditions. It's an interesting, um, you know, the, the, a very sort of direct and typical approach might be to have the traditional building and contrast it with the new. And there's a very clear relationship between the two, a sort of sharp line and difference. Yeah. Um, but I think in this project, and also you mentioned in other projects, there's, there are recurring um, themes. I'm thinking of Subiaco House, if I'm pronouncing it right. There's definitely feels like a precursor project to this one. Um, but w yeah, with this house, I'd almost describe it as more, it's, for some reason, I kind of think of it as it's like a traditional house, but in a dreamlike state. Like you're kind of in this sort of mid sort of dream phase where you're walking around the house and you really can't differentiate what's going yeah. on. There's a real blend yeah. between the modern architecture. And um, if we go back to the um, the concrete um, pediment, because that, that is something that, that you have sort of used in some form on, on a couple of other um, projects as well. Um, and you were talking about the, it's called raise and under technique, isn't it? The, the lifting of houses, or some people have referred to it as that. And, and listeners will be familiar with that technique from, um, we've had John Elway, another Brisbane architect on the podcast, talking about um, terrarium house. So we'll be familiar with this idea of you literally taking the whole house and lifting the whole thing in one go, kind of jacking it up and lifting it up. Um, but the existing property here, this is a, a very different project to terrarium house in terms of scale. Um, what was the reason, was there a need to to raise the house? Was there a need for this layer underneath the building? Did that come from a kind of practical requirement? Yeah, that was part of the client's brief. Um, the, the amount of accommodation that they wanted for the house was in excess of the original floor plan. Um, so we, we always knew that we were going to have to add additional space to the building. And one of the one of the benefits of building under the building in some instances, there are, there are sort of pros and cons to it. Um, one of the kind of negative sides of doing that is that you end up in the undercroft of the building and, and with that comes uh, uh, sometimes a lack of access to natural daylight. Um, and uh, the, the, but conversely, the, the positive side of doing something like that is that you can preserve open space on the site. And one of the major focuses of the design of this house was to preserve as much of the open space on the site as we could. Um, and, and really that's a theme that runs through a whole bunch of our projects is that we, we place an equal weighting on um, the garden as we, do, as we would on the house. And um, so, so placing a lot of this additional GFA that was going into the project underneath the building allowed us to preserve the open spaces uh, around it for, for other uses, essentially. 
and the clients it's it's a corner plot it's quite an open yep. um site and i've read somewhere that the clients were quite keen on they talked about the kind of civic gesture of the the property i've read somewhere and it was important for them you're talking about the garden that part of the garden space left was left so it feel like part of the city which i found really interesting quite refreshing um to read something like that because naturally the tendency usually private houses to close off this space and create a sense of privacy but it's actually in many respects it's quite a public building so you're the pediment the concrete kind of floor below the house it's actually quite important it has these layers i imagine to create these kind of areas of privacy within the living spaces yeah i i think um i think one of the things that you wanted to talk about in this conversation was the idea of practicing from a position which is something that that's and and i think it's probably a good time to jump into that because it it kind of has a bearing on on the question that you just asked and when i when i first met Stu, uh, he was a, a tutor of mine at uni, so Stu's 11 years older than, than I am. Um, and <clears throat> I, was in, I was in third year, I was you know, do, doing all right, um, but floundering a little bit internally because I was struggling with confidence to, to kind of understand how and why you might make decisions. And, and I think a lot of students seem to find themselves in, in a similar kind of position. And one of the great things about Stu is that he's very um, tenacious and determined, but he's also very decisive about the way in which he thinks. So he's um, great at being a tiebreaker when you're trying to find a solution to something. Um, he's, he's great at instilling a project with the kind of confidence that you need to move forward. And one, one of the things that he spoke about from the very first time that I, that I met him and, and came into the office and started doing some work with him was that he would, he would talk about this idea of practicing from a position. And <clears throat> what, that, what, what I think that means, it's, it's kind of evolved over the years what exactly we might mean by, by that term and also what the position is that we might be practicing from. But, but I think essentially what it comes down to is being able to articulate to yourself and to others what it is that you, you stand for and what it is that you value. Um, and, and that comes back to an understanding of who you are and, and having a, and a level of authenticity and a level of insight into your own um, you know, personality and your, your, your values. And from that, to try and put together a kind of cohesive idea about what your practice might stand for, so you know, what position you take. So I'm kind of circling back around in my long-winded way to the original question, um, and this idea of civility and, and um, of, of, of the relationship of the private house to the city. But if I was to summarise what I, what I think our position is at the moment, and it changes all of the time you know it's 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 not a fixed position it's not like we have what we think is the answer um, but but the kind of current position that, that we're practicing from is to to see ourselves as custodians and for us that amounts to kind of two main things one is a, a kind of recognition of our responsibility to be custodians for ideas and in that uh, what I mean by that is that they're, you know, we're just the current generation in a long line of human beings who have made and thought about and written about and designed spaces for you know, the, the entirety of our existence as a species. And that body of knowledge has value and, and, I, and, and I think that it's, it would be incredibly reckless and arrogant to ignore that. So when we approach our projects, we try as much as possible to look at what already exists um, in terms of the physical context of the project or the intellectual context of, of a project or a place and to apply that and to talk freely about where our influences come from. And the other kind of custodianship is about custodianship of the city. So custodianship of the city really is, what it comes down to is if you're going to act um, upon the city as an architect and change it, then you want to be in a position of having changed it for the better, which kind of sounds obvious, and I think most practices would say that they're in that business as well. Um, but, for, you know, for us it's about having been conscious of making a street, a neighbourhood, a locale, a city better than we found it. 
So in all of our projects, and a lot of our work has been in small-scale um, domestic architecture, projects that traditionally are seen by a lot of people as not having a relevance to the city. They're, they're not seen as being civic projects. And, and I guess Stu and I have come to a position of, of wanting to dispute that because as we, you know, as we would engage over a long period of time in this type of project, some really small, you know, deck, making a deck extension or renovating a bathroom or whatever it is, um, you know, we, you could easily fool yourself into thinking that you're just making projects in anticipation of one day making a project that actually does count for something, you know, a, a gallery or a stadium or a, you know, a cultural hub of some description. But when we started to, um, it's actually our ex-business partner who did it did it first. Um, he put together um, a map, an aerial map of Brisbane, and he plotted all the built projects that we had done in the kind of 10 years that we'd been in practice at that point. And what we began to realise was that when you look at all these dots from afar, that what they amount to is a kind of um, a, a project that contributes as much, perhaps, on a daily basis to the city as a major, major cultural building. You know, if you aggregated all of this GFA into one building, it might approach the same scale as, you know, a museum or a library, and it might also affect as many people on a daily basis. Um, so, so to kind of um, slowly turning the oil tanker around back towards your original question. So, so with respect to Tenerife House, this idea of the, the public role of a private building and of custodianship of the city starts to play out by recognising that A, this building is significant, so it needs to be treated with respect, um, and that the, the, the kind of the, the memory and the, 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 the cultural narratives that cling to these timber buildings, and this one in particular because it's an A.B. Wilson designed house, needed to be preserved and protected. But with respect to its relationship to the city and its, and its civic role, we tried to make sure that the, the things that you've observed about the house um, were prioritised. So we preserve open space on the site because we recognise that the suburbs of Brisbane are largely characterised by um, these verdant gardens, large open spaces and mature shade trees. So if we go and build over that, then we, that, that's an immense loss to the city. And if everyone goes and does that, if they sort of... Um, take a chainsaw to their backyard and, you know, concrete it over, then what we end up with is a far less pleasant city. Um, we recognise that the, the private house um, has a major contribution to make to a street. Um, and in Brisbane, because we have a lot more space than you might have in London, say, um, there is a heightened ability to withdraw from civic life. You can build a great big fence on your front boundary, you can turn inwards, you can replicate in miniature all of the kind of amenity that a city would normally offer in your backyard. You can have, you know, the public pool in your backyard, you can have the theatre or the cinema in your, you know, um, media room underneath your house, you can make a bar, you can invite your friends around and, you know, socialise in your backyard, you can completely cut yourself off from the city if you want to. So, so we're always conscious of wanting our buildings to encourage engagement with the street. And in this instance, it was relatively easy because we're on a corner lot, as, as, you've, as you've observed. So from the living areas of the house, you have always a visual and an auditory connection with the street. So if a friend walks past and they, you know, they call out when they're walking the dog, you'll hear them and there'll be a wave and you, know, they might, you might even go out and have a chat over the, over the front fence. And all of those things matter to us because they're the building blocks of community and again when you look at that sort of multiplied over the scale of a city if if you have an architecture that is that, that is civil and and civic in its in its fundamental nature then you engender the kind of behavior that that we would like to see in the city and to be honest we're we're fighting a tide a kind of reactionary tide against civility in, in our city you know more 
tall front fences are going up, then people are pulling them out and lowering them. Um, so that that I think is you know is a small gesture. It's not like we're we're changing the world, um, you know, in any in any kind of ma massive way. But what we're trying to do is is to do to do good in small ways. The, in, in the ways that we can or that are on offer to us within the kind of constraints of the kind of projects that we're doing. And so with, with Tenerife House, what, what challenges did that represent then in terms of, from the perspective of designing the home on the, the opposite side? So we've got this sort of civic sense and this relationship with community, um, but did it, did, it face, did it pose challenges on a corner site in a design of this nature to create the kind of sense of refuge and privacy that's, yeah. that also might be required from some of the living space? How did, how did that kind of challenge you and, and how did that affect the design? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question because if you don't get that right, then the curtains get drawn and this sort of fantasy of wanting to have occupants who are engaged with their community, it just dissipates immediately, you know. So if, if you don't, if you don't judge the personalities of the people that you're d designing for properly, um, or you don't manage to, to balance that level of exposure, then you know it becomes um, self-defeating. So. Look, we, we, we still had a lot, a lot of space on this site, you know, it's, it's a big house and um, so there was plenty of flexibility to be able to um, position uh, more private spaces within the house um, at, uh, part, on parts of the site where they were less overlooked. So the, the way that the, the building is planned, um, by virtue of the fact that the, the main um, kind of uh, sleeping space or the more private part of the house is raised a story above the ground, that immediately gives it um, a certain level of um, insulation from, from the street. But we've also um, placed uh, the bathrooms and bedrooms on what you might call the, the rear side of the house from the street. So as you move away from the street, the rooms are inside of the building become increasingly private in their nature. Um, and that, that's something that we, again, I'm sort of talking about lessons that we've taken from other buildings that we worked on previously. This, this kind of zoning of public and private spaces is one of the lessons that, that we've, um, that we've learned. We've also, you know, learned a lot about the structure of, of these Queenslanders and, um, the different ways in which we can arrange spaces within them to, to manage circulation and privacy and make sure that the relationships between the rooms still work and then the relationships between the more public spaces and the street can also um, flourish successfully. Um, so if we're sort of sticking with the um, the living spaces, there's a, I've got a great um, quote that's, um, I don't know, it's either from you or Stuart or you do sort of combined quotes, I don't know, but um, the social life of the house is always underneath um, and referring to this kind of undercroft space that you've, you've created here by lifting the house up. Yeah, that's definitely from Stuart. It's definitely Stuart, is it? <laughs> Yeah, because I, I, I don't actually, I don't think I agree. But anyway, could you finish the finish the question? <laughs> well, then, then we I'll... could talk about that then, because he's he's not here. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, he is downstairs, um, so he may hear me. Um. So if well, we if we talk about the this space underneath, because the the layout is you've got the kitchen and dining space and the the rumpus room that I know is a, a term often used in Australia, but I think it's to sort of describe the snug a kind of more relaxed um, no, living space? No, not quite. It's more of a trashy living room. It's a living room you don't give a shit about. That's, that's sort of the, the definition of a rumpus room. It's where, you throw, it's where you throw the kids and then you throw their toys and their Xbox and you lock the door and get, you know, get away from them. That, that's sort of yes. the, that's the definition of a rumpus room. So that, that's why you've tucked it, hidden it behind the garage and the utility rooms. Correct, yeah, yeah. Um, could you talk me through a little bit about the layout? Because again, just wanted to sort of touch on actually, again, I think there's some some similar themes from some of your other projects of the way the kitchen's located in the plan. So the kitchen is the kind of heart of the house, but it often in your projects, it's kind of tucked, it's tucked in and back from the perimeters of the building. 
um, and is usually a kind of, well, in this, in Tenerife House, it's a sort of slightly darker part of the house, even in the sort of materials you've used. But then you've got this double height space, the stairs and dining room. Could you just talk a little bit about the design of, of these spaces? Sure. Look, I'll, I'll give you my version of what I think the house is, because um, I, I, I certainly don't agree with... I, I think what Stu might have been saying was that the, the life of the house in this particular building may be occurring underneath the house. I, I think the, the more correct statement or observation that, that Stu and I have used over the years is that the life of the house tends to follow the kitchen, which I think is a kind of truism and, and we'd all recognise that. Um, and probably what he meant was that the kitchen is under the house and therefore a lot of the life, um, the social life of the house is, is happening on the ground. Um, really that's less about it being under the house um, and more about it being on the ground. Um, particularly, you know, most families, but particularly families with young um, children, we, you know, often the game in um, undertaking a project for them on their house is about connecting the raised timber building with the ground plane because the ground plane is really the, you know, it's, it's, it's the, um, the kind of natural habitat of, of the child. Um, you know, it's a great place for exploring the world and getting yourself wet and muddy and doing all sorts of wonderful things. So, so we, you know, we often find ourselves putting living spaces on, on the ground, either under the house or adjacent to it. Um, and the, the way in which we control where we think the life of the house is going to go is by positioning the kitchen. So, you know, on some of, some of our previous projects, we'll, we'll often look at um, putting the kitchen either in the front room of the house um, to ensure that the house has a relationship with the street um, or sometimes putting the kitchen on the veranda um, so as to allow the life of the house to be on the edge of the garden. Um, to sort of have a strong relationship with with nature and with with the outdoors and access to, to natural daylight. Um, in, in this instance, because those things are occurring under the house for the, the reasons that I spoke about earlier, um, I think I think that we were conscious of wanting to preserve or make some kind of allusion to that shadowy undercroft. Um, just you know, despite the fact that we've made habitable rooms under the house, we wanted there to be some kind of echo of what that space once might have been. And the undercroft of a timber house is a really evocative space. You know, it has a, a dirt floor that possums and other critters scurry around under at night. And there's this kind of forest of, of stumps holding up the house and you can see the underbelly of the building with the exposed joists and bearers and you know the the bed the bedrooms above are separated from this open undercroft by 19 millimeters of pine flooring so you know that it's this really it's quite a tenuous kind of architecture you know it's almost I've heard it described as um, living in a in a basically a wooden tent, um, and that's really not far off the mark. So, you know, you know the the, the kind of um, the, the the cultural uh, or collective memory of, of these spaces lingers in our thinking, and I think we brought that to bear on this project. You know, consciously or unconsciously, that sort of felt like some sort of force that was that was acting on our on our mindset when we were designing the spaces and so so for that reason as i said before the the, the concrete colonnade preserves the kind of recess um, when you look at the building from the outside and allows the building to to sit on a shadow as it were and then the the, the parts of the house that are literally underneath the building they they get quite a um a dark palette so we used um, a lot of black painted cabinetry um, I guess as a, as a way of evoking that sort of um, the, the, the mood of, of the, the undercroft but also um, using inlaid brick flooring as a way of um, evoking the original dirt floor that would have been underneath the house you know bricks are just mud put in an oven so you know it's I guess it's kind of a, a little bit of a heavy-handed um, kind of an idea but on another level there's something if you if you know these houses and if you've lived in them and if you've crawled under them and 
you know, stored a kayak under them or parked a car under them or played under them when you're a kid, those those kind of tendrils of, of memory somehow they're, they're, they're there and, and, I, and I think if, you know, you might not recognise it immediately but if you spend a little bit of time in the house or if someone explains it to you then you might say, oh, of course, you know, I, yeah, I totally, you know, I get that, you know, I felt that or, or that, that resonates with me in some way. Um, I'm conscious that it, that I that I'm sort of babbling on quite a lot, so uh, I'll I might just uh, and and then I get I babble on so much, and I'm not quite sure if I've actually answered the question, but I'm going to assume that I've nailed that one, and I'm just going to stop right there. Well, <laughs> well it nicely kind of summarises the, the the ground level of this property. It is it is very grounded. Um, it's the concrete, you know, it's a heavy, solid material. The way it's used is very kind of structured as this colonnade, but also you, you talk about the sort of darker timbers and, and, and I love this sort of theme. Again, a, a theme also from other projects, but of using brick on the ground floor again, sort of really grounding the kind of earthiness of these living spaces. But it's from this kitchen space then that we start experiencing the, the new extension that you've put onto the back of the building and the kitchen looks out onto a dining space that sits under a triple height or double height volume that you've created with this new extension. And that's where the stairs start zigzagging up to go to the upper level. So yep. almost kind of, we're talking like art gallery scale here, aren't we? Of it's pretty you know, zigzagging stairs going up. Yeah, I think, I think I could fit my house in there just about. So my whole house... It was that quite challenging. I mean, you know, you've mentioned before that a lot of your projects before were, were probably smaller scale. And I think this house, because it was turned into a mental health hospital for a while, it was 25 bedrooms I've read somewhere. And you've effectively sort of transformed that into a three, four bedroom um, house. Was that actually really hard working with such a kind of mm-hmm. huge scale? There is a, there's a few more than three or four bedrooms, I think. Um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it's about five. But um, anyway, being nitpicky. Um, the, the, look, I, I think you're right. I, th- I think that, that although a lot of the answers for this project had already been presented to us in other projects, the principal challenge of this of this particular project was the scale, and and I don't, I don't just mean that you know we had to spend more ink um, drawing it all. I what what I mean by that is that to find architectural gestures that were commensurate with the scale of the building was challenging because we had never been in a position to do that before. So, you know, where at what point does that become grotesque, grotesquely overscaled? You know, and, and we did have concerns about that. You know, we we thought we need to make a room with, that is um, that that underscores the grandeur of this this house, um, the amount of money that's being spent on it, the scale of the block, um, all of those things. We you know we need to have a, a principal room that that um, can bring all of those things together. So, um, and I mean that in a, in a number of different senses. You know, it's the kind of focal point. You know. As a, as a kind of, I suppose, a, a theatrical gesture to the house. You know, it's the, the kind of culmination of arriving at the building, entering through the front door, coming through the house, and then arriving in a space which says, you know, you've arrived, this is the place in which something is going to happen. Um, but but also it, it kind of um, brings together a number of different levels of the house. So the, the, the space that you're talking about is in the new extension at the rear of the building. And the so it kind of plugs into the original house. So there are a number of points at which you can look down into this void. Um, so it's quite, quite literally connecting a, a whole bunch of different parts of the buildings via this one, you know, very tall um, volume. Uh, and I think... I think in the end, you know, there, there was there was a certain amount of concern for, from our point of view because we we hadn't made a room of that scale before. To think, well, okay, is this is is there a point at which you can make a room in a private house so large that it becomes inhumane? People still have to, you know, eat their cereal in here, and for that to feel normal, there still has to be a place where where a family can can come together and have a normal family life. They're not 
wanting to live in an art gallery. They're not wanting to live in, you know, the town hall. That those kind of precedents aren't, aren't appropriate. Uh, I guess, I guess we, you know, that that's kind of a problem that you uh, kind of get a certain amount of comfort with by looking at other precedents and. You know, we, you can look at the work of um, Palladio and the you know the sala that that was used in a, in a lot of his uh, private houses, and get a comp get confidence that you can make this grand room that is you know flexible that can accommodate a whole bunch of different occupations. It can be kind of overscaled in terms of it, you know, its its height or its width, and that actually can be a room type that can work really successfully but notwithstanding that I think you know even, even to, to the point of getting on site and seeing the frame go up there's probably a certain amount of trepidation about whether we calculated that um, in exactly the right way uh, you know and, and in the end I, th I think it does actually um, kind of reach the right kind of pitch or tone um, given you know what our ambitions were for the space. Well, I'd say it's, I mean, the layout and the spaces, they're tight. They're, um, you know, it's a very big house, but there there aren't any kind of overt gestures of, oh, this is just a ridiculously big living room. Like you often would see on a kind of wealthy estate and this yeah. massive living rooms, the proportions yeah. are out. Well, we like making rooms, um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not the kind of architects who just want to make one massive volume and then divide it up with furnishing, you know, that that's, we've always been room makers and we've always been architects who start with the idea of walls. And that kind of sounds like a slightly odd statement and I hope it makes some kind of sense. But I guess what you could say is that there are sort of two ways of beginning to conceive of this a space. One is to start with walls and a defined space with a particular intrinsic character, and another is to start from the perspective of having an absence of walls. So, you know, doing everything that you can, you know, using structural gymnastics and other um, devices to 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 eliminate the idea of any kind of confinement for the space. Um, so, you know, it, it might be the difference between, say, um, the work of Miss van der Rohe and the Farnsworth House, um, which is, you know, largely an architecture that's interested in the idea of um, an, an absence of enclosure, of, of sort of maximal exposure, um, as opposed to, say, the architecture of Louis Kahn, which, which for me was more about um, the, the creation of very distinct um, hermetic uh, defined spaces and, and rooms. Well, if we talk about that in reference to what you've done here with Tenerife House, in the, the space that we're kind of in, where we're going from the dining space, we're going up the stairs to the sort of bedroom levels, it's a triple height volume that's added to the back of the house. And in other hands, this is the kind of space that might be very glassy and very open and, and huge. But actually, most of it is is walls. It's actually remarkable how little of the extension has um, openings. Was that a very kind of conscious effort? I, I imagine there's there's a big element here um, responding to local climate as well and the heat and the, the sharpness of the sun um, in Brisbane. But also there's you know, there would have been opportunities, maybe in other hands, people might have gone, oh, we want views here. And when you're going up the stairs, you see this, but actually it's, it's a very closed approach. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it, I think it's um, probably a lot of it comes back to my, my previous interruption and the idea of being in interested in walls. It, it's certainly a product of the local climate. Um, and, you know, that's a, that's a major factor, but pro probably the final thing that I, that I would say about it is that Stu and I are, are quite interested in, in uh, the, the picturesque movement, um, the idea of um, Appleton's prospect and refuge and, and also secondary prospect and refuge. And, and I, I guess the way that I would summarise what those ideas mean to us is that we're, we're interested in the way that you might um, foreshadow a view, um, pre present a view only to take it away again, um, the the idea of, of screening off and editing using architecture as a as a way of framing and editing um, a context or an outlook um, 
so as to, to, to heighten the experience of moving through a building. So on the ground floor um, of that volume, you have large glazed sliding doors that can pull back. So on, on two sides, it's almost completely open, apart from the fact that there's a depth that's created by the, the colonnade and the overhangs um, of, of the roof. But as you move into the mid-level of the building, it's probably you know, 80 or 90% solid walls. And that's quite deliberate because what we wanted to do was to, to shut down some of the views to neighbouring properties um, or less desirable aspects of the outlook and focus on particularly selected framed views of the immediate context. And then the third floor of the building, um, which is kind of up in the roof space or adjacent to the roof space of the original house, is um, this large kind of largely unprogrammed um, viewing platform, I guess you might say. Um, you know, it's available as a dining space or an entertaining space, but it's it's really um, it's really about um, a desire by the client to be able to get up um, right up to the top of the building and to take in these amazing panoramic views that that you can get and. And at that point, um, the wall of the building is cut into one big, long, glazed panoramic window that runs from one side of the room to the other. It's, I, I don't know how, quite how big it would be, but it might be around 10 or 12 metres wide and has this amazing outlook to the east um, from that room. And really that's the payoff for that mid-level closing down. So the idea that you might come into the volume, get a local view at ground level, see the action of the stair going up into the volume and think, well, you know, what's going on there? There must be something kind of interesting to be had. So you follow that journey through and it's not until you ascend all the way to the top of the stair and then this view opens itself up that you get the payoff for that. And, um, you know, I, I, I find those kind of moves really powerful. Um, and but more importantly, I find them sustaining. And I grew up um, in a house uh, on the Sunshine Coast, which is um, about a sort of 100, 150 kilometres north of Brisbane, in this sort of beautiful hinterland setting. And, and our house was, you know, a pretty kind of ordinary project home. Um, but it was located on a hillside and it looked out had amazing panoramic 180 degree views of the entire hinterland of the Sunshine Coast. It was gorgeous. But within about a, you know, a year or two of living in the house, we, we quite literally didn't see it anymore. We did, didn't even notice it. And it wouldn't be until someone would come and visit the house who hadn't been there before and they'd walk into the building and see the view and stop and go my god this is amazing look where you you know and you sort of go oh yeah you know it sort of reminds you that it's there and then you go outside and sort of point out some things and sort of say oh that's a and what I began to realize that this kind of um immediate access to the view from every single room of the house somehow had the effect of making us complacent about our engagement with our, with our context and the kind of beauty and the joy that came from that. So uh, again, I think it's, you know, it's about finding a balance. It's like this, this sort of what we were talking earlier about um, the kind of civic um, engagement of the building. The engagement with um, the, the outlook of the building is also something we need to find the right balance because, you know, it would be perverse to deny someone that entirely but if you if you withhold it in just the right way what you can actually do um i think you know or we would argue is that you can accentuate and elevate um their experience of that view and, and make it something that's far more special um and sustained over a long term yeah, there's definitely something of the civic in that of this house. I mentioned about an art gallery before, but there are kind of some elements of that of the ground spaces would be the part that engages most of the public. As you move up the building, it's darker. There's, there's less view. It's more about what's happening inside. And then you get the sort of viewing platform on the top. And I know it's not literally that in this house, but it's that idea of journey and the excitement of the contrast of of journeying through it um, and midway through that journey let's say on the first floor we've got the the bedrooms that are we're going up that stair in the double height space and the bedrooms are in the 
the original part of the house, so probably the most sort of traditional part. Um, what I find really interesting about what you've done with the design there is how the spaces are organized, in particular that there's a, a corridor, probably original, I'm guessing, but that runs right through the middle of the house. Bedrooms, most of the bedrooms are all in a row facing onto the corridor, but on the other side they face onto a veranda. But they don't they don't have, from what I understand, direct views to the outside because the veranda is the kind of WC um shower utility type spaces can you just tell me a little bit about that because it's kind of a, quite a peculiar layout it's not one that many people would be familiar with um and is that in response mm, to mm. the original building yeah um still will be delighted that you've asked me that question because he he only had one piece of advice for this um for this interview and it was to to talk about emptying the original plan um so i'll i'll, I'll dive into that um one the one of the ways in which we we start a lot of these alt-nad projects is to to kind of cleanse the plan of subsequent additions and alterations. And in this instance, particularly because, you know because of its conversion into into the um, the hospice and um, you know other things that had been done to it over a long period of time, you start to lose your connection with the original logic um, that had governed the, the layout and the planning of the building. So, you know, we don't literally go in there with a sledgehammer and, and physically remove these things, but, in, you know, at least in the drawing, we start to think about, all right, well, what was, you know, the original structure of, of this building? Where were the walls? You know, what might have been a veranda and has been enclosed? And, you know, where did the original roof stop and start? And, you know, asking ourselves those kind of questions that I, I think a lot of architects would do when they're when they're approaching um, working with a historic building and that 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 knowledge and also knowledge of the way that other buildings you know were, were planned in this era gives us a lot of answers um, for for how we might reoccupy that plan but it also sort of puts us in a position to be able to um, re-establish some of those key idea, ideas that, that were in the building um, beforehand. So that's kind of a long-winded way of getting back around to what we actually did with this building. And and the the, the planning is is essentially to use um, the, the the original central corridor of of the house. And most Queenslanders are planned around a central corridor. And to one side of the corridor is um, is a suite of living spaces, so an office and a dining room and a, and a sort of sitting room, and that's on the, the sort of the street side, and those spaces open onto a, a veranda overlooking the street. The, the building has verandas on, on three sides, I should say, for um, anyone who hasn't looked up the plan. Then on the other side of that corridor is where we start to put more private spaces, so you get um, a series of bedrooms and a, and a dressing room. And then the, 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 the final leg of the veranda that's on the kind of backside of the building, as you said, becomes um, a, uh, a series of bathrooms. And this is, it's, a, it's a device that we'd used um, on a number of projects, much smaller projects prior to this. And what it, what it allowed us to do was to, to reuse and reoccupy that veranda um, in a way that allowed us to, you know, to not have to sort of build even more floor space to accommodate those uses. Um, but it was also where we'd used it in other projects, we'd recognised that there was actually something really magical about the idea of feeling like you had gone outside onto the veranda in order to brush your teeth or bathe or, you know, use a WC or whatever. Um, it, it sort of tapped into something that um, I, th I think this would have been the same in the UK, but it was historically the case in Brisbane, which was that all of the toilets used to be outside um, in the backyard. So you would have to, you know, walk across the backyard in the middle of the night to go and use the, the toilet, check for spiders and then sit down. And um, also um, a lot of these original timber buildings didn't have internal bathrooms um, or laundries um, and the original accommodation for bathrooms were often found on the back veranda. That was sort of the traditional place to put them. So it was kind of tapping into this um, kind of way of um, altering buildings that had sort of been traditionally the case 
but also there was a kind of evocative experiential component to it, which was this idea of feeling outside and preserving the, um, the spatial characteristics of the veranda. So, so that's really what, what we were pursuing. And um, you, you're right that two of the bedrooms don't get, um, they don't have a window directly to, to the outside. And in lieu of that, what, what we created was um, large, what, what you might call shop front windows, which opened onto the veranda. So those buildings in a sense had, you know, they're big, broad verandas. They're not sort of skinny little things, you know, they're quite generous. And in a sense, what those bedrooms had was their own address to um, to it to a street. In a way, you know, you could think of the veranda as a kind of a street space, um, being sort of slightly outside the building and being sort of unprogrammed and, and generous, and also a circulation space. So, so they they kind of open onto the veranda as well as the internal corridor, and. In the way that we've set out the bathrooms, we've allowed for gaps between um, uh, some of the, the different fixtures. So, um, you know, the WCs are housed in cubicles and then there might be a gap with a window to the outside and then a sort of recess that has a basin in it. So the buildings are still, the, the, sorry, the bedrooms are still able to look through the veranda and out to the view and they can get natural daylight coming in via the veranda space. Um, but no, it, it is sort of slightly unconventional and I haven't seen, even in Brisbane, too many other architects pursue um, that as a solution, which hopefully isn't an, an indictment on, on our approach. Uh, but for us, you know, we, we find it, we, as I said, we find it really evocative um, and, it, and it seems to be one of those moments where you know that you're in this place and not another place because it's not something that happens. You know, other climates wouldn't permit it. Other building types don't have these spatial characteristics and these room types like, you know, a sleep out or a, or a veranda. So the more that we can tap into that and make it an intrinsic part of occupying these buildings, the better, you know, all, all the richer in, in our opinion. Um. Aaron, okay, I've got um, the three questions now that I'm going to ask you that I ask um, all my guests that are now sort of moving a bit away from Tenerife House and more towards you. Um, so the first one is, um, what's the one thing that really annoys you in your own home? Well, <clears throat> my, I, I have a little timber cottage. I've got a very different kind of a timber building to this building. Um, it's, a, it's what's called a worker's cottage. We have just about the lowest rung on the worker cottage um, shelf. We don't, we don't even have a corridor um, in our house. Our house was such a bargain basement, cheapy special that um, didn't, get a, didn't get a corridor, but it's still got a lot of the same lovely characteristics of living in a timber tent um, in the middle of a city full of one and a half million people. Um, it's, I think my wife would say the, the principal difficulty with our house is that we don't have a kitchen. Um, we've got a sink that we bolted to the wall um, and some loose pieces of furniture that we stick things in and a table that we prepare food on, but um, I think that would be pretty high on her agenda. The, the other failing of our house is that we, unlike most houses in Brisbane, still have to go outside to use the toilet um, because it never really got brought inside. So I've gone outside to use it. it sort of the, there is a roofed connection between the house and the toilet, but it's completely open and I often find um, neighbourhood cats kind of prowling around in there um, in the middle of the night. So, look, they're they're just too low hanging fruit um, with it with our just house. Just two minor things: other... no kitchen and an outside toilet. <laughs> yeah, but look, um, twenty twenty one could bring all sorts of amazing changes in our life. So I, I remain positive and upbeat. Yeah, we call it the busman's holiday. So all the clients' projects come first. Yes. Um, well, project in the pipeline. Um, that's a good. That's a good brief. I've not had that one before. We don't have a kitchen, and we have an outside <laughs> toilet. <laughs> um, well, if we talk about then um, houses that you maybe have visited or that you've stayed in, um, if you could pick one that's really inspired you and and tell me why. Mm. You s you sent these questions through in advance, and I did ask you what I should say. Um, 
I don't think either of us really had a had a great answer. Look, there's there's some um, there's a house that I've never visited by a local architect called John Railton um, at Dickey Beach on the Sunshine Coast, and um, there's something really alluring about it. And it, it's essentially one big room, big double height room, as far as I can tell. Some beautiful oversized double hung windows that open onto a garden, and just a few kind of servant spaces, ancillary spaces off to the side of it. And there's something so wonderfully compact and essential about that, the, the idea of just having one space where everything happens and it's large enough to feel generous and beautifully proportioned and materially rich. And I could imagine that kind of a room just being intensively occupied and loved and filled with energy and vitality, uh, um, vitality. Um, so I think, I, th I think I'll settle on that one because, um, probably a lot of your listeners won't have heard of it, which might make me sound kind of edgy. Like I'm into some, um, <laughs> alternative, alternative band that you've never heard of. Um, and, and, and also because I, I think there's something kind of universal about what makes that building beautiful that you probably most people would be able to think of a building that evokes those kind of qualities and has that kind of sensibility about it. Mm -hmm. And then if you could choose any architect to design you a home, who would you choose? Hmm. Oh, I'm sort of, I'm loath to, oh, this is terrible. I'd get Stu to do it, I reckon. He'd, um, He'd, he'd put his heart and soul into it. Actually, no, that's terrible. I won't, I won't say did he, that. Did he ask really you to say soppy. that? Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I was checking. I could hear some noise in the background. I'm hoping you didn't hear that. Um, that's a, that's far, too, um, far too soppy and saccharine of me. Um, I'd probably, I, I think if I, uh, maybe what I'd do is I'd set up a breeding program and I'd get um, Alvaralto and Louis Kahn um, hitched up on a blind date and whatever the offspring of, of that union was, then maybe I'll, maybe I'll run with that. How, how about that? So a combination of Khan and Alto. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's best to pick dead architects to, to design my house. Cause you know, that way, that way no one gets jealous. Um, <laughs> Stuart won't get jealous. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's not dead enough yet. Uh, Aaron, uh, on that note, um, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. I've really enjoyed that. You're welcome. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Vokes and Peters, then please visit our website at anotheracitecturepodcast.com where you'll find links to their work. And try out the podcast Instagram to see work of all my guests and get sneak previews of upcoming guests. If you enjoyed the episode, please tell your friends. And if you can, give me a review on iTunes or whichever platform you are listening on, as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode. And thanks again for listening. Thank you.